Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, at a Sacramento rally in 2016, members of a white supremacist group called the Traditionalist Worker Party stabbed counter-protesters with the civil rights group by any means necessary. The FBI responded by opening up a domestic terrorism investigation into by any means necessary. At first, the FBI misidentified the Traditionalist Worker Party as the Ku Klux Klan and was going to investigate BAM for conspiring to violate the rights of Klan members. In documents that described the Klan as consisting of people, quote, that some perceived to be supportive of a white supremacist agenda, close quote. That's not just an interesting historical fact. It should be a reality check for those who currently imagine that the FBI can serve as some sort of check on Trump-era white supremacy or protect those who organize in opposition. The ability of citizens to speak out against injustice is a living, vital tool. Interference in political expression by the state cuts democracy off at the root. But that interference isn't just in the form of pepper spray or cordoned-off speech zones at big events. And not only is it not new, understanding its history is key to seeing how it works and how to curtail it. We'll talk with journalist and researcher Chip Gibbons, policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent and author of the new report, Still Spying on Dissent, The Enduring Problem of FBI First Amendment Abuse. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. The January 14th Democratic debates taught viewers something about the candidates and a lot about the corporate press. So many lowlights, it's hard to choose. For many, it would be after having heard Bernie Sanders say he did not tell Elizabeth Warren that a woman could never be president. Moderator Abby Phillip asked Warren how she felt when Sanders said the thing he said he didn't say. Then there was Wolf Blitzer's awkwardly transparent attempt at guilt by association. Quote, Senator Sanders, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini has again called for all U.S. troops to be pulled out of the Middle East, something you've called for as well, close quote. The groan heard round the world might have been when Sanders was cut off from talking about environmental opposition to Trump's new NAFTA treaty by a moderator saying, quote, we're going to get to climate change, but I'd like to stay on trade, close quote. If media can't understand the way climate disruption and trade, despite being different beats, are critically integrated, why would we expect coherent or even intelligible reporting from them? Moderators seemed at times to be performing the role of adversarial reporters without being clear on what that job actually is. It's about drawing out what powerful people might want concealed not forcing them to answer, again, the same questions in the same form they've been asked multiple times, as Sanders was repeatedly called to account for the trillions of dollars Medicare for all would cost U.S. taxpayers, which, absent the savings, is the quintessential half-a-ball score. And commentators couldn't help but note that none of the many questions about keeping U.S. troops in the Middle East suggested that cost had anything to do with that. 
As Rolling Stone noted in their roundup, quote, in an era of endless war abroad, painfully and often prohibitively expensive health care and education at home, and a climate crisis that threatens to make the planet inhospitable to its 7 billion human inhabitants, the challenges of change were treated as paramount or even insurmountable, while the costs of maintaining the status quo were barely mentioned, close quote. One of the things not discussed in the debate, along with Puerto Rico, abortion rights, and immigration, was labor and the rights of working people to fair wages and workplace protection. But that's not because debate hosts CNN don't have a position. They do. The network has just settled an agreement to pay $76 million in back pay it took from broadcast technicians 15 years ago. The largest monetary settlement in the history of the National Labor Relations Board, it stems from when CNN terminated a contract with Team Video Services that provided audio and video services to their New York and Washington bureaus and then hired new non-union workers to do those jobs. That's called union busting, and it's pretty much labor law violation 101. But after a judge called the violation in 2008, CNN fought long and hard, filing more than a thousand exceptions. In 2014, the NLRB ordered CNN to bargain with the unions and provide back pay, but CNN appealed again before finally settling in advance of a planned picket at the Democratic debates, by which point several of the workers due back pay had died. CNN is a company that has a position on workers organizing. They will spend years in court to fight and deny it. CNN reporters are employees of that company and ultimately no more likely than any other employees to come out swinging against the position of the people who sign their checks. And finally, it took a court ruling to make clear that it's not a crime to feed homeless people, but stalking and harassing them? That'll get you a paycheck at some outlets. Infamously, the New York Post, which, as Joe's Martrujillo writes for FAIR.org, closed out 2019 with a master class in homeless shaming. Gothamist gave an appropriately acerbic account of the news the Post thought its readers could use, a drooling and pungent homeless man using a Whole Foods buffet. Gothamist notes, quote, We're told that the bar has no sampling signs, that the man has visibly dirty mitts and is grabbing food from the trays and shoving it directly into his mouth, wet with drool and framed by a scraggly beard. The man's beard is worth two mentions, close quote. The New York Post spent two weeks in 2016 crusading against a homeless woman who had the audacity to push around multiple carts of her possessions. They ran multiple front-page stories in 2015 about a homeless man that the paper claimed was making $200 an hour by begging. On New Year's Day, the Post had an outraged story about a shantytown in Manhattan where homeless people still lingered even after the paper themselves had called law enforcement to remove them. Well, the Post is a cartoon to many, but their actions shape coverage of other papers. 
after the tabloid chased around a homeless man waiting for him to pee and putting that on their front cover twice a few years ago, the New York Times followed suit with its own in-depth pee story, citing the Post's front pagers. The Times did quote a source noting that Wall Street analysts doing jello shots on Madison Avenue might be as prone to public urination as a crew of robbers drinking malt liquor in East New York, but the story wound up endorsing the contention that the latter rather than the former deserved attention because they're the ones relaxing after a long day of robbing. While the Times complained that arrests for public urination are not concentrated enough in poorer neighborhoods, or as they put it, neighborhoods historically subjected to the highest numbers of recorded police stops. There was, of course, no mention in the story of any relationship between public urination and poverty or homelessness. The New York Post saw some pushback after their Whole Foods story, with some people calling out the reporters. It required the skills of three of them, apparently, to bring us that important piece. And that pushback rankled folks like BuzzFeed's news director and its editor-in-chief, who both weighed in to chastise people for shaming the shamers. New York Post editor Joe Tacopino was also affronted. Critics could unleash an angry mob, he said, against reporters who were simply doing their jobs. It's true that publishers, editors, and owners are ultimately most responsible for anti-homeless media coverage. But is there no blame left for journalists willing to cut their teeth by punching down? It seems as though when they win awards, they show up to collect the accolades their stories provoke. What about when those stories provoke outrage? It's not clear why reporters, any more than ICE officers, should be able to use just following orders to excuse work that bullies and endangers the most vulnerable. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. We invoke protest a lot in this country, but many people are confused about the right to political expression. They don't want to get on the wrong side of the law while arguing for righteousness. That's not a familiar or comfortable spot for many people. Some are honestly confused about which side the law is on. They haven't accepted that their belief in the value of human life might make them a criminal. If the life in question is a child whose parents seek asylum or an Iranian whose country is, this week, on the hot list of enemies of the state, that's a hard thing to get your head around. Mainly, people think the law will uphold our rights, despite our knowledge that sometimes the state is the one stepping on them. Our next guest examines just how state actors intervene in and undermine what should be protected political activity and speech. Chip Gibbons is a journalist and a researcher. He's policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent and author of the recent report, Still Spying on Dissent, the Enduring Problem of FBI First Amendment Abuse. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Chip Gibbons. Always a pleasure to be on Counterspin, one of my favorite programs. Well, thank you. You make clear that this report is not about Donald Trump per se, because these are issues that long predate him. But one of the more 
perverse developments, I would say, of the Trump moment is liberals, understandably eager for there to be some commensurate power to counter that of the White House, are seeming to endorse the FBI as that force. So the report is completely relevant to the present moment, as history generally is. But let's just start briefly with what you looked at. What was the material for this project? Sure. So the material is all information that was already in the public domain. But what we went through and did was we looked at known incidences of FBI surveillance, monitoring, or tracking of political protest since the year of 2010, so the last decade. And what we found is that repeatedly over that decade, the FBI has repeatedly used its counterterrorism authorities to spy on and monitor environmental groups, anti-war groups, labor groups, so basically, you know, civil society activity for justice. And when you look at the incidences together, what you realize is that they're not isolated incidents. If you ever see media coverage of an FBI political spying scandal, it will be like FBI spies on environmental protesters in Houston. But it won't say, and just last week, the FBI was knocking on the homes of Palestine solidarity activists in Berkeley. So when you put these things together, what you see is how systemic the problem is. And after we did that, we went a step further and looked at the history of political surveillance in the United States to make the case that the trends that we see in the last 10 years, which continue to this day, are part of a larger history of political surveillance in the United States as carried out by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And let's be clear, the FBI themselves have acknowledged that they're not talking about groups that have been engaged in known violence. They explicitly say these are, you know, some of the people they're surveilling are nonviolent, are peaceful organizations. In many of the cases, they do. We know from the files released via the Freedom Information Act about the surveillance of Occupy Wall Street, the FBI acknowledged they were nonviolent. We know about the files released about School of the Americas Watch, which is a pacifist anti-war group that protests a notorious military training facility where that has been training death squads and dictators in Latin America, that they were a peaceful group with peaceful intentions. They try to rationalize this by saying that an unknown point in the future, that a unknown actor could infiltrate these groups and act violently, or in the case of Wall Street, they occupy Wall Street, they said the group could be exploited by a, a lone offender. But what's really insidious here is that they clearly think that certain types of speech, therefore, are somehow suspicious. And you see this logic even more in play with the black identity extremism intelligence assessment, which states that if African Americans are concerned about police racism and social injustice, they're more likely to engage in lethal retaliatory violence against law enforcement, and that's a threat the FBI has to counter in the present. And what that's saying is that, you know, being angry about social injustice you experience is somehow a, a pretense or a pretext that one might then use to go and engage crime. It's, it's a predetermining factor in, in criminality. And you see that again with one of the FBI offices. Field offices had a report on um, because of anger at you know the horrible treatment of migrant children who are in concentration camps in this country that you, you're more likely to see 
anarchists engage in violence against the government. So this treatment that certain types of speech lead to crime and therefore are inherently suspicious. And you also just see the government just quite frankly conflating speech itself with criminality or with terrorism or what we have. Well, I have to say media play a role here lifting up every foiled terror plot as justification for anything at all, because, you know, look, we foiled a plot, you know, even if the plot was the work of an FBI agent, you know, agent provocateur ginning up some confused man in a chat room, you know, but whatever civil liberties or rights you want to hold up, I feel media play into countering that with, but wait, this unknowable number of deaths has been prevented, you know, so this whole idea of preemptively preventing violence is incredibly insidious. Absolutely. And it's good that you pointed out agent provocateurs because the FBI has always used confidential informants to spy on dissent. But since 9-11, and especially in the Muslim community, those confidential informants have increasingly acted as agents provocateurs, going to people who are not suspected of any crime. In, in one case, they met someone, a random person in a parking lot of a mosque, and then suggesting and in many cases enticing them to agree to terror plots that exist only in the FBI's minds. And then when they agree to partake in them, they're then arrested. And the FBI does these big press releases and big press conferences saying, oh, we foiled terrorism, we foiled a terror plot. And that further justifies more repression. Donald Trump's Muslim ban, there are multiple iterations of it through multiple executive orders. But in the second executive order to try to overcome the legal challenges to it, he cited a rationale for it, and he named two quote-unquote terror plots carried out by refugees. In both of those cases, the plots were the work of an FBI agent provocateur. In one of the cases, the judge found the plot to be an example of imperfect entrapment. So here you have the FBI manufacturing fake terror plots and then going around using that to claim there's a larger threat from terrorism than there actually is, and then that being used to justify more state repression. Well, you know, Lyndon Johnson called the Gulf of Tonkin resolution like Granny's nightshirt. It covers everything, you know, and I think that getting folks to accept the idea of a war on terror, getting reporters to take that phrase out of quotation marks and suggest that it's a solid, identifiable thing, that's a real Granny's nightshirt of a victory for some, including the FBI. I mean, the idea of just saying terrorism is allowed to justify a great deal. It is. And it unfortunately, in some cases, you know, it, it predates with the FBI 9-11. They certainly accelerated the abuses after 9-11. But, you know, in the 1980s, they were using the quote-unquote threat of international terrorism to investigate opponents of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, and specifically the committee and people of El Salvador. And as part of this, you know, massive foreign counterintelligence investigation against a domestic group engaged in domestic political activity, activity, once again, protesting horrible injustices. They, you know, came up with a list of organizations who were in support of CISPIS's goals that included, like, the Mary Knoll nuns on it. So, you know, they've long used the threat of, of terrorism or subversion or, or whatever to spy on dissent. And 9-11 and the existence of a war on terror has only given them more legitimacy for delegitimizing dissent.
Well, I said at the outset that some folks haven't accepted that their desire to speak out for their beliefs can get them labeled criminal. Of course, some of us were born uh, with that label. Our opposition is stamped in our ethnicity or our gender presentation or our neighborhood. And something has changed. That 2008 decision about assessments, things have shifted so that simply belonging to a certain community on paper is allowed to make you suspicious, yeah? Sure. So in 2008, Attorney General Michael McKay, George W. Bush's lame duck attorney general, literally weeks before Obama comes into office, and he puts out new attorney general guidelines. And what are the attorney general guidelines? The FBI was created as the Bureau of Investigation in 1908, without Congress's approval. So to this day, they have no congressional or legislative charter outlining who they can investigate, what techniques they can use, and why they can investigate someone. They're not only a law enforcement agency, but they're also an intelligence and national security agency. So law enforcement, in theory, is supposed to be about investigating people for crimes and then prosecuting them. I think your listeners know that's not really what law enforcement does. It's more about social control. But intelligence, on the other hand, you know, doesn't have any such mandate. So it's much more broad. And they've always used that to sort of spy on dissent. But in the church committee in the 70s, a lot of this starts to come out and people are outraged And as a result, they don't impose a legislative charter on the FBI. Instead, they agree to this compromise where the attorney general creates guidelines for the FBI. And because these guidelines are created by the attorney general, any attorney general can change them. And in 2008, like I said, Michael McKay issues new guidelines that are unprecedented in the scope of authority they give the FBI. They let the FBI carry out what's called assessments, which are investigations that do not require a factual predicate to believe the individual is involved in crime or threatens national security, merely a quote-unquote authorized law enforcement purpose. So for the first time since the church committee, the FBI has the authority to investigate people not suspected of any wrongdoing whatsoever. The report also includes some recommendations and some thoughts about going forward. You've said uh, the guidelines around them are murky. They don't, a lot of folks don't understand who's in charge of the FBI. Courts don't call what they do entrapment straight out very often, just like we know law enforcement can lie to suspects, straight up lie to them. But the response is not to give somehow the FBI more power. No, I mean, I think what we need to do is we need to actually have a legislative charter that defines what the FBI's powers are, and they need to be limited to investigating only violations of the federal criminal code, and we need to have serious protections for the First Amendment so that the FBI cannot initiate or conduct investigations involving, you know, the exercise of free speech unless there are specific and articulable facts that actually indicate that the subject of the investigation is engaging in in a criminal act. I think that would be a huge one. I think limits on the use of informants to not allow them 
absence, once again, suspicion of crime. So there's not the sorts of dragnet informants you see where you send a confidential informant into the Muslim community where there's no suspicion of any wrongdoing, and then you try to entrap people, or what should be called entrapment. You know, barring the informants from acting as agents provocateurs would be helpful. And I think Congress needs to actually engage in its oversight role, and I know that's a shocking idea, and actually investigate what the FBI is doing. Because we know from information in the public domain that in the last decade alone, they've spied on Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, Abolish ICE movements, Palestinian solidarity movements, environmental movements. Obviously, that's only the tip of the iceberg because we don't have access to all of the information which Congress could get, and they could ask the question, why are these investigations being initiated? What other similar investigations have taken place? What is the scope of this political surveillance? Well, we should be able to argue that this infiltration and surveillance of protected activity is wrong without having to tack on the note that, oh, and also it actually doesn't make you safer. Absolutely. And yet the, the context is that we do need to make that clear to folks. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But, you know, the more time the FBI spends investigating people who are engaged in nonviolent political protected speech, the less time they spend investigating actual threats. If you actually believe the FBI is a tool to counter actual threats, which I suspect many of your listeners may not, but if someone did believe that, why would you then be okay with them being allowed to investigate people without any evidence of a crime? Because that means they're just out there doing futile or wasteful investigations and diverting resources away from what's their stated purpose into this sort of political policing instead. Well, and then let's just bring it back, because I am trying to say to folks, you know, Maybe you don't think you're a black identity extremist, but, you know, if you go through a checkpoint and you have some Asada Shakur in your backpack, hey, you know, um, you know, there's kind of an essentialism undergirding this, that there's good people and bad people. And if people are bad, it doesn't matter what you do, you know, to them. And I just would encourage folks to think this could be you. This can be you. This may be you right now. Yeah, I think that's important to remember that this type of surveillance threatens us all if we are engaged in political activity. And the FBI should not be allowed to investigate political activity. They should not be allowed to investigate people who they have no factual predicate to suspect of wrongdoing. It's insidious. We've been speaking with Chip Gibbons, Policy Director at Defending Rights and Dissent. They and this reporter online at rightsanddissent.org. You can find Chip Gibbons' piece, Never Trust the FBI, at jacobinmag.com. Chip Gibbons, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you've missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website. It's FAIR.org. The website's also the place to sign up for FAIR's Action Alert Network. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.